So Psalm 68 is a psalm that portrays God as conqueror, and especially that line in the stanza, the first stanza we sang, when you, O Lord, went up again, you led your captives in your train with tribute in abundance. That's the progress of God through the world. And uh, keep that image in mind when we read our reading together. Second Corinthians, second letter of, the, of Paul to the Corinthians, starting chapter 2, starting at verse 12, because that uh, same image comes back there. 2 verse 12, 2 Corinthians 2 verse 12 to 3 verse 6 is our reading. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance from death to death, to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. For we are not, like so many, peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. We also read this afternoon from Lord's Day 31 of the Catechism. This will provide a, a kind of a doctrinal anchor for us as we consider the keys of the kingdom of heaven also in relation to our passage, Lord's Day 31. It asks the question, what are the keys of the kingdom of heaven? The preaching of the Holy Gospel and church discipline. By these two, the kingdom of heaven is open to believers and closed to unbelievers. How is the kingdom of heaven opened and closed by the preaching of the gospel? According to the command of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is opened when it is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins for the sake of Christ's merits, as often as they by true faith accept the promise of the gospel. The kingdom of heaven is closed when it is proclaimed and testified to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rest on them as long as they do not repent. According to this testimony of the gospel, God will judge both in this life and in the life to come. So far.
beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, it is amazing how quickly we've gotten used to being in church together again. For a while we had to worship at home, but now for most of us that's a distant memory. We've come to realize that worshiping at home is not as good as being here in person. Having said that, the the pandemic, globally speaking, has changed worship for a lot of people. The trends are different now than they were a few years ago. In October of last year, the Wall Street Journal ran an an article on internet worship services. They quoted a survey of American Protestants, which found that 45% of those who experienced online church services now believe that worship online is equal or superior to the in-person experience. Only 44% want to return exclusively to in-person worship, according to the report which surveyed more than 1,000 evangelical Protestants. Now, that was in America, which has a different social and political climate than Australia does, but one would imagine that if you were to survey 1,000 Australians, it might not, the answers might not be all that different. One person quoted in the article said, one has to wonder whether this will ultimately lead to church nomads who surf the internet for new church experiences rather than putting down roots and becoming part of a church community. That is a risk, and it's always been a risk as long as there have been live streaming services. The one thing the article does not do is discuss why it matters to be a church member in the first place or part of a local church community in the first place. If you're going to talk about the keys of the kingdom, which we hope to do today, spending some time on the first key, then you need to answer that question first. And Lord's Day 21 of the Catechism provides us with a good starting point for the doctrine of the church. It says, quote, I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and forever shall remain a living member of it. So the Son of God gathers his church out of the human race. If he gathers people out of the human race, he must gather them into something, and that something is the church. Now, obviously, as we noted this morning as well, the church is more than the building. The church is more than just an assembly. But the the Bible does not know of free-floating Christians who choose to do their own thing independent of the body of Christ. No, it is in local, faithful, Bible-believing churches that the gospel is preached. It's in the church that people are discipled. It's in the church that they're brought under the rule of Jesus Christ. It is in the church that people are nurtured in the faith. Without faith, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. We confess in Lord's Day 7 and 25 that God works faith in people's hearts through the preaching of the gospel. And that's what happens here in church. So that's why the preaching of the gospel has eternal consequences. And that's what we'll also focus on this afternoon. How the preaching of the word has eternal consequences and we'll focus on what preaching is and what preaching does. So who holds the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Well, Jesus Christ does, but he has entrusted these keys to the church, as we also confess in 
Question and answer 82 of the Catechism. Christ commands his church to preach the gospel. That was his last commission to them before he left. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. That's why the Catechism legitimately says that the preaching of the gospel happens according to the command of Christ. Christ is the one who commands his church to preach. Christ commissions people through his church to preach. Preachers never commission themselves. They are commissioned by Christ who calls them through his church. So what that means is that the authority to use the keys of the kingdom is a delegated authority. It is not inherent in any one office bearer. This is where the Roman Catholics have it wrong, of course. They say the authority to to use the keys resides in the person, in the clergy, in the priest. The priest himself personally opens and closes the kingdom of heaven. The congregation as such has no role in the process. And they, they believe this authority to use the key is inherent in the clergy. But you don't, you don't find that in Scripture. Many evangelical believers, however, have swung in the opposite direction. They say that the authority of the key lies in the Word itself. So anybody who wants to can exercise that authority, that power, by speaking an edifying word or sharing his personal testimony with the congregation. And that's not biblical either. No, the keys of the kingdom have been given to the church, and she can only exercise them when she is officially gathered through her office bearers. The keys of the kingdom are never used apart from her or aside from her. Christ has entrusted the public proclamation of his word to the church. He equips people for the work. For example, in Ephesians 4 verse 11, it says that he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. So he equips people for the work, but the church, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, sets them apart. For example, in Acts 13, verse 12, we read that while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So the congregation calls the minister, the congregation listens to him, the congregation evaluates whether his preaching is in line with Scripture. And so there are things that you can deduce from this. So far, all we've done is is look at what Scripture says and, and deduced conclusions from it. And one of them then is that there can be no such thing as a person who claims to be called by God and then goes off to establish some kind of ministry on his own. That sounds very pious, right? To say that God personally called you to ministry. I mean, who's going to argue with God? And people do that. They say God personally called them to ministry, then they go off and they have this itinerant ministry. It, um, It also means that you're not accountable to anyone. It makes it very easy to avoid accountability. But biblically speaking, a genuine call to ministry happens through the local church. Now, you can study for the ministry before then if you sense that God is guiding you in this direction. But you are not called to the ministry until you have been called by a local church. So because preaching can only be done through the authority delegated by Jesus Christ, it is only his word that may be proclaimed. A church is, a sermon is not a motivational speech. 
It's not a moral pep talk. It's not about improving yourself so that you can live a better version of yourself. It's something totally different. Preaching is proclamation. A sermon is a proclamation of the Word of God. And that word proclamation is biblical. It's reflected back in question and answer 84 as well. It is proclaimed and publicly testified to each and every believer that God has really forgiven all their sins. So to proclaim something means to announce it officially. It's the promise of forgiveness and renewal for all those who turn to Christ in faith. It is a proclamation of his victory, of his death, of his his resurrection. Now that sense of an official proclamation of victory comes out very strongly in our reading from, from 2 Corinthians 2. The background here is that Paul had experienced serious personal conflict with the Corinthian church, so much so that he had to leave. And we, we don't really have time this afternoon to reconstruct exactly what all happened, but it seems that someone from the church had despised Paul in his, in his office. And in doing so, he had rejected the word of God. And that, that church stood behind him. So they were in danger of losing the gospel. Paul left, but he sent them a letter warning them. It was a very painful letter for him to write and for them to read. And so they collectively repented, and they applied church discipline to the sinner. That's what verses 5 through, through 11 are about, which, which we didn't read. And then, um, then we find out in uh, chapter 7 that, that Titus had brought back word of their repentance. And Paul saw that as a victory for the gospel. So in verses 14 through 17, he describes the victory of the gospel in terms of a triumphal procession. And it's worth stopping for a moment and asking yourself uh, what that would have looked like. It's, there's a historical background here to, to this idea of a triumphal procession. There were about um, 350 of these processions that we know of that, that are mentioned in Greco-Roman literature. Often what would happen would be that a conquering general would come back from war, and then he would have a victory parade. And these victory parades were very involved affairs. Generally, you would ha- it would begin with heralds at the front who would blow the trumpets. And sometimes there were people behind that who were, who were spreading incense and, and flowers and perfume everywhere. Then behind them, there would be the spoils of war being carried by slaves or, or in ox carts. Then you would have musicians playing on flutes. Then white oxen, garlanded white oxen for the sacrifices to the gods. And behind them would be prisoners of war who would generally be executed in the arena afterwards. And before or after them would be the conquering hero driven in a chariot with a crown or some kind of laurel wreath or something being held above his head. Sometimes the most important person, the, the king who had been conquered, or the most important prisoner, the king who had been conquered, would be tied to the chariot with a rope and forced to trot along behind it. And then the army would follow behind them. So you can just visualize what this procession would be like. And that's what he's referring to. This all had one purpose and one purpose only, which was to honor the conquering hero. And that, says Paul, is what the proclamation of the gospel is about. It's an official public proclamation that Jesus Christ is victor, that he has conquered sin and death. 
So it leads us to the question, where does Paul himself fit in this? He talks about, um, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. So where does he fit in this procession? Does it mean that Paul is one of the soldiers, maybe, following along behind the general, being cheered at by the people? Is, is that consistent with his experiences as an apostle? Well, let's think about that. In chapter 11 of this letter, he talks about his hardships, and he says, Are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is a daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. What does that sound like to you? Does it sound like a Pauline version of your best life now? It sounds like he's, it sounds awful. It sounds like he's still in the middle of the battlefield. So this triumphal imagery can hardly refer to his success as an apostle. The focus here is on Christ, the one who conquered the power of sin. And he conquered Paul. Remember that Paul was still living in his sin when he was going around persecuting the Jews or the, the Christians, I mean. He was going around as a Jew persecuting the Christians. So Paul here is not a soldier being cheered up by the people. He's one of the prisoners. He's been taken by Jesus. He's been taken as a prisoner from the dominion of sin and of darkness. And he's thankful for that. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he says in Colossians 1, verse 13 through 14. So the victory of Christ is a victory that was accomplished in the past. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, he says in Romans 5, verse 8. So preaching has to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in the Bible and proclaim that. Now, in some churches, the preaching has made way for personal testimonies. And those have some value, and it's, it may be well-meant, but the fact is that these are not the proclamation of the gospel. It is not the proclamation of what Christ has done in the past with a call to repent and acknowledge his work. So personal testimonies, even though they are very encouraging to hear among friends, have no place in the worship service. And we've noted before, there are also certain megachurches in which the prosperity, in which the, go, the gospel is replaced with a triumphal message of health and prosperity. These are the preachers who want to march along in the parade, so to speak. That also misses the point. Unless a preacher proclaims Christ crucified, he is not preaching the gospel. So the view presented by our text does not just change what you should expect from preaching, but it also changes how you should listen. Why do you come to church? You should not come to church purely to have your spiritual needs met as if that is the only point of worship. You certainly may not start going to church elsewhere simply because the message there is more palatable. 
Instead, when I come to church, I may only listen to the proclamation of the victory of Jesus Christ and then hear how my life stands in relation to that, in that order. That's what preaching is about. And this is a problem with the prosperity gospel. And yes, we have mentioned this on more than one occasion, things against the prosperity gospel, but the reason for that is, is because it's so prevalent because there are so many Christian books being written today that are essentially, on some level, influenced by this. And the, the problem with the prosperity gospel in the end is that it is so trite. It makes it look like the only concern of the gospel is, is to ensure that we all have our needs met. As if there's no greater purpose in our life than for us to avoid pain and to be happy and to become rich. How is that good news? How's it good news to take what you have already now and to make, make you a better version of you? Where is, where is the transcendent in that? We don't want to draw the gospel down to the level of our ordinary, often unregenerate wishes and desires as if that's the only purpose of our life. The point of our life is to, the point of this is to draw our lives into the orbit of the gospel. It's meant to transform us. That's what preaching is supposed to do. Preaching is the proclamation of the victory of Jesus over sin and death. It's the proclamation that God has really forgiven all of my sins. Really, really forgiven all of my sins for the sake of Christ's merits as often as I, by true faith, accept the promise of the gospel. And it's therefore also a proclamation to all unbelievers and hypocrites that the wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them as long as they do not repent. This is what preaching does, is. These are not just idle words. That's not, not just a question of what preaching is, but of what it does. It is a judicial declaration. God really has forgiven all of our sins if we believe that he has done so for the sake of Jesus Christ. Not, that's not just a wish that is declared to you as an accomplished fact. And the same thing holds true for those who refuse to believe. The wrath of God and eternal condemnation rests on them as long as they do not repent. That's biblical. Jesus said that in John 3 verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's present tense because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God unless he repents. If a hypocrite repents and believes, then he's saved. He has eternal life. And the opposite is true as well. If a church member stops believing, then he's under the wrath of God and he will perish. Those are, those are two categories, those who are being saved and those who are perishing. And though that's a present progressive tense. These categories are not fixed. There's still time to repent. And that is the awesome urgency of the preaching of the word every single week when you come here. As often as you by true faith accept the promise of the gospel, you can still receive forgiveness, but after death, the opportunity is gone. You do not get another chance after you die. Then the provisional sentence has been finalized, and there is no going back. That is what makes the preaching of the gospel so urgent. It has eternal consequences. The Apostle Paul, in chapter 2 of the letter that we read, uses the image of an aroma or fragrance to refer to the preaching of the gospel. You remember at these victory parades, often they burnt incense. In verse 15 he says, We are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, 
and among those who are perishing. This aroma obviously would have, have different connotations depending on who you were in the parade, whether you're one of the people about to be executed or one of the people that, that has been um, victorious. So he's, he's drawing a parallel there. In his preaching, he is spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ. But what does he mean when he says in verse 15, this is the aroma of, of Christ to God. We are the aroma of Christ to God. What does he mean? Well, he's saying if the gospel, if it is, he's saying if the gospel is proclaimed properly, it is like a pleasing aroma to God. It's always pleasing to God because it is the gospel of his son. His son is honored when the accomplished fact of the gospel is proclaimed. The proclamation of victory is always pleasant to God. Even if people reject it, it always leads to his glory. And to some people, it is the smell of death. They cannot stand the proclamation of the gospel. Whenever they hear it, it further hardens them in their sin. But to others, it is a fragrance of life. They hear the gospel and they want more. And you can't stop them from learning. They can't get enough. And it drives them to repentance, to further submission, to, to, submission to Christ, to further growth as, as one of his children to further service in his kingdom. So how about to us? I mean, Paul was writing to people that were first-generation believers. Most of you are not. You've been um, in the church for many generations. As, as God's covenant people, how, how does this fit with us? Well, the preaching of the gospel is always the fragrance of life to us. And some people have made this very difficult for themselves. They say, well, first I need to know whether or not I'm elect. First I need to know whether or not I'm elect, chosen by God, and only then can I know whether or not the gospel promises will really bring me life. But it doesn't work that way. The, the proclamation of the gospel is the proclamation of the forgiveness of sins. And it calls you to respond in faith. There's only one of two possible responses. Either you move towards it in faith or you move away from it in hatred and indifference. And that's all there's to it. Consider the words of the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 8. But as many as are called by the gospel are earnestly called, for God earnestly and most sincerely reveals in his word what is pleasing to him, namely that those who are called should come to him. He also earnestly promises rest for their souls and eternal life to all who come to him and believe. Yes, it is true. There are people who are reprobate. Yes, you will even find some in the church. Yes, they will reject the gospel. That does not make the call of the gospel less earnest. The gospel is always true. It is always sincere. It always goes out to you with the call to repent and believe. In Ezekiel 18, we read, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. The proclamation of the gospel reveals Jesus Christ. And he calls people to repent of their sins. He calls them into a living relationship with him. Verse 14 of our reading refers to the fragrance of the knowledge of him. The Greeks thought of knowledge in academic terms. For them, knowledge was that you mastered a system. The Jews saw knowledge as something that came out of experience. Paul was a Jew. So when he refers to the fragrance of the knowledge of him as a Greek-speaking Jew, he does not just mean that the gospel is 
about how much you know. Obviously, you need to um, know something in order to believe it. But knowledge alone can never be the basis of a relationship. To really know Christ means to have a personal relationship with Him. It means to be redeemed by His love. It means to walk behind His chariot in triumphal procession as one who was captured away from Satan. That relationship is a gift that God gives through faith. Faith that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts by the preaching of the gospel. And yes, that obviously functions within the parameters of the covenant relationship that that God establishes with us. He makes covenant promises to us, but it's through faith that we respond to them. It's through faith that we make these promises our own. So can you really speak about going to church online? Not really. Not if you understand what the preaching of the word is. Not if you understand what it does. This is... Life-changing stuff, you do not fit this in between making another round of coffee while you spread yourself on the couch in your loungewear. It's not how it works. You think about the words from Psalm 147 that we're going to sing at the end. He dealt us with no other nation. They do not know his revelation. Consider the great privilege of knowing this God, of hearing his word, the unique opportunity that you have as a believer at this point in your life to just come here every week and to be built up in your faith. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll take it online if we have to. We had to for a while. We needed to better than no church at all. And undoubtedly, many have come f- to faith in this way. And yes, there will be some who need to stay home for extended periods of time due to illness or, or, or children maybe that um, for whatever reason can't come to church. That can happen. But let's not think that the preaching of the gospel is a product that we just consume at our leisure as we do with so many other things. It's something totally different. You need to be here. You need to be mindful. You need to be in the moment. Something happens here in the preaching of the gospel that cannot be duplicated when people listen online. Now, of course, you can get used to anything over time. There are people who come to church and who sleep through every service. It's been said before, they would not wake up even if an angel with a sword appeared in the sanctuary. Not if the same angel appeared at the same time every week. People can get used to anything. As the old saying goes, familiarity breeds contempt. But may it not be true for us. Let our familiarity not make us lose awareness of what happens here every week. For the preaching of the word has eternal consequences. May it always be the aroma of life for us. Amen.